0: This podcast is a Tucker Media production. For more information, head to tuckermedia.com.au. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Media Maids podcast for the first time in 2017. We've had a little bit of a break, but we're back in action now. My name's Ralph Tucker. Each week I'll chat to somebody I've met from my career in and around the media industry. All of them have such great stories to tell. I'm not Michael Parkinson or Andrew Denton, but I do enjoy chatting to interesting media people about where they've been, where they're headed next, and everything else in between. My guest today is Gavin Carmody from Sky Racing. Gavin has been working in the media industry for 17 years, firstly at 2UE, then 2GB, and now Sky Racing. He chats about what it was like working for Alan Jones, his love for horse racing, and how he got the nickname Sparkles. Gavin is one of the more entertaining and fun people I've met during my career, so I really hope you enjoy our chat. Gavin Carmody, welcome to the Media Mates podcast. Nice to be with you, Alfie. Now, you're at Sky Racing, and you have been for... Quite a while now. How's that all going for
1: you? Yeah, terrific, mate. I think uh, coming up to six years, at, uh, and it's been a lot of fun. It's been a very different, completely different to uh, to radio, obviously. But uh, it's been a lot of fun. Get to do a lot of travel, meet a lot of great people, and tell a lot of great stories. And hopefully, that translate when we when we go to the track. Was media something that was always on your agenda as a, a young kid that you wanted to be in,
0: involved in that?
1: Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, it was either media and racing and. Somehow, I've ended up with the happy medium of getting both, which is uh, which got has the been fantastic. Got the Quinella, the Daily Double, even it, um, it. was certainly media. I've had a media family, media and racing, and it was always going to be that path. And it was pretty obvious early on that I wasn't going to follow in my brother's footsteps and become a jockey. I'm about two foot taller than him and about thirty five kilos, and he's got a lot more cash. But um, <laughs> it was never going to be riding, so it, it was going to be something training. I was too scared of horses to to actually go into that sort of thing. So the media was the the happy medium.
0: And how did that progression start for you? Did you do any study or did you,
1: one of these ones that managed to flum your way in straight from high school? Well, I started study. Somehow I got accepted into Sydney University and got halfway through a degree, which completely didn't interest me. And I thought, why am I wasting my time? So was that communications? Yeah, it was at Sydney. And I thought, well, why am I here? I'm just making up the number and completely wasting time and money. So I decided to go in a different direction and got my first job, in fact, Prue McSween. The great Prue McSween gave me my first gig as a 17-year-old, I think, in her Edgecliff office down there at Prue McSween and Associates. And then I was, I was writing press releases, starting out doing that sort of stuff, very basic stuff, obviously. Yeah. But, and that led to, to radio once Prue got a start over at 2UE when Stan Zamanik left for the first time. And I was lucky enough that she took me over and was doing nights over there for a good 12 months with Prue. So she's the one that gave me my start. So we're talking about around about the year sort of 2000-ish, I would have thought. That'd be right, yeah. Finished school in 99. I was working part-time for Prue whilst doing the HSC and then went full-time once I'd finished my studies at high school. And talk to me about that first experience in radio, for someone that had
0: obviously kept an eye on media and all things that were were going on there, what was it like being involved in a a real radio show um, at a place where 2UE, where at the
1: time it was the number one joint in town? It was overwhelming, I have to say, to walk into a building for the first day to, to sign your contract and you see Alan Jones doing breakfast, John Laws doing mornings, John Stanley doing afternoons, Mike Carlton doing drive. Peter Bosley and Andrew Moore doing sports today and then Stan who became Prue doing nights. It was quite overwhelming to be in a building with the biggest names in the industry and you first go and just to be a very very small cog in that wheel and doing the phones at night was just incredible. I imagine being part of that immediately you would have learnt a whole lot and learnt really fast. Well you had to. It was, it was sink or swim stuff and the the big guns there, they were very no nonsense. You know, you either got it right or you were gone. So, unless you you know the old saying, if you don't shape up, you'll be shipped out. Well, somehow I managed to to get through that, and you do learn very quickly. And the experience of people like your Jones and your Hadley and your Laws and your Carlton and Zamanik and McSween and names John Stanley, names like that, it's just incredible the the wealth of knowledge that they have with a vast experience over so many years that they were passing on to an 18-year-old kid who went in virtually knowing nothing. And then on the
0: nighttime program with Prue, which I imagine would have been a little bit more relaxed than perhaps what the, the other programs would have been, would have a, a heavy
1: news slant. That program would have been... A little bit more about entertainment as such. Yeah, it was fun. It was all about fun. And of course, she obviously canvassed the big issues of the day, but she did it in her own sort of style, her famous sort of no-nonsense style. And it was a lot of fun. She had segments on that program like Karaoke Corner, where, you know, the, the listeners would ring up on a Friday night and do their best, belting out a tune with backing music and whatnot. And there was uh, i remember once we had a night at the Cassie club where she got all of the listeners there that had rung up and had belted these songs out over the 12 months and had a bit of a karaoke night with the Ann was there as a as a guest judge the late charlotte dawson and carlotta was there and by the end of the night well well let's just say that the, the scotch got a good workout god love her <laughs> but, but 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 programs like hers at the time were were based Purely on fun with a bit of that news and talk element as well. Yeah,
0: and I'd imagine also Janine Moore, who was Janine Toos back then, was working with you. She was a a young gun producer. Yeah, Um, EP she was, yeah. What did you learn from her? Because you coming in and doing the phones, you're obviously not just
1: that guy. You've also got to learn
0: about you know, content and how to produce it and all of those things
1: as well. Yeah, and ringing up people and booking inter- interviews and, and lining them up and making them feel comfortable. Janine was great. I, I remember the first day I worked with her, and I had worked with her a little bit with Malcolm T. Elliott very briefly. And, but I remember Janine, of course, Janine Toos as she was in the early days, as the newsreader. It's 10 o'clock, good evening, I'm Janine Toos. <laughs> and to, to be actual, just to, to think that you're working alongside someone like that who herself had a media profile was fantastic, absolutely fantastic. You spent, what,
0: a couple of years at 2 before the, the groundswell happened when um, Hadley and Jones
1: moved over to 2GB? and. He and Ian and- Wallace, the great Ian Wallace, once said, are we all getting on the Piermont Express? And we were all <laughs> getting on the Piermont Express and, and there we are. We ended up going this side of the bridge as uh, as opposed to that side of the bridge. So, yeah, we were part of that. Of course, Hadley went first, as everybody knows, and I stayed at, at, at 2UE. For some months after, they had defected, but then got a start over at GB. What was that like when all of a sudden everybody was just
0: leaving the ship? Because it was the Sydney radio powerhouse to UE. New owners came over and, you know, as a few people have said on this podcast before, came over and virtually decimated the joint, didn't really have any idea about radio, and then thought that, you know, Jones was overrated and Hadley was just a a sports caller. Well... I don't think that they made two bigger mistakes there. So what was it the feeling like within the building when all of a sudden there was one day, as I understand it, where 35 people got sacked and then all of a sudden everybody pretty much moved over to
1: GB within a couple of months? It was an incredible time and something that I probably won't experience again, that sort of mass defection as it was. Well, firstly, there were two points about it. They said that it had never worked. Jones, it had never been done where somebody had successfully transitioned from one talk station to another, and they said that Jones wouldn't do it. Boy, did they get that wrong. They said that Hadley was a sports caller. He'd never make it hosting a morning program. Well, I think 250-odd surveys later, they've all eaten a bit of humble pie. So it was it was a nervous time, but when I went over to GB and started working with Jones, the one thing about that him was that he had this amazing ability to back himself. And you, while we were all confident that he would do it, once we knew that he was confident within himself that he would succeed equally as he did at we over at GB, well, and the ratings you know, started to reflect all of that, we knew that we had all pulled the right move. And it was really, he was two's on to succeed for anybody that knew him. He used a bit of racing lingo. Uh, the, the doubters, well, they had to shut up pretty quickly, didn't they? Your part of the,
0: the cog initially was working with The two Murrays, when Murray Wilton and and Murray Olds were signed to be part of the nighttime format, that's where our paths first crossed in the fact that those guys and the sports department, namely me and Andrew Moore, were shunted to the 10th floor of the luxurious uh, Sussex Street building that was 2GB before they moved on to to, to Piemont. They were fun times,
1: weren't they, working on that night show? Oh, they were <clears> great <throat> fun. They were great fun. And I'm sure that the boys won't mind saying that occasionally on a Friday in preparation for the very hard-hitting program which they regularly put out, we would quite often have a little heart starter at the Criterion just across the road to get the juices flowing. Oh, mate, I believe that was called a production meeting. Yes, and it wasn't just on a Friday. I tell a light it was five <laughs> days a week and it was every week. <laughs> but what did you,
0: like having gone from work with... Prue over there to work with those guys on a night show that was similar, that was about more so while Murray is obviously a well-esteemed journalist and, and broadcaster, Murray Olds I'm talking about had his news hat on, but he was always able to have fun where that's where Murray Wilton came in. So that combination of, as to put it in a sort of radio vernacular, light and
1: shade just worked well, didn't it? Oh, it was brilliant. As you say, with uh, with Buzzard Murray Olds, it was that very strong news hound, journalistic, hard hitting, real hardcore newsman. Whereas Wilton was completely the opposite. He was like the naughty uncle that you you know you, you had to try and tell him not to drink too much at a family gathering. So they worked so well together because Buzzard would tackle the the big news of the day. Murray Wilton had this wonderful rapport with listeners, whereby. Uh, Particularly bush people and his affinity with country and regional Australia, that shone through so well and I think he's still got his farm down south and his involvement with the Royal Agricultural Society and that sort of stuff. They were great times and uh, and I can see why they, they, they rated it. It never felt like I went to work, put it that way. It never felt like you're doing a, a normal job. It was far from that. So what did you learn from those guys then? I, th- I think the apart way, from drinking, apart from that, apart from plenty of that and, and plenty of big nights, just the uh, the way that they would go about putting a program together was very interesting. And everyone has their different ways of doing that. Uh, Buzzard would very much be editorial based, whereas Murray Wilton was was a much more uh, light and shade. It was, they were very very different. The way that they would put their programs together was was fascinating. The way all of those guys and girls put their programs together was fascinating, but above all, the idea, particularly on that program, was to have fun and, boy, did we have a lot of that.
0: Then, of course, the call came for you to go to the other end of the day and work on the, the Jones program, the Alan Jones Breakfast program, which by that stage had cemented itself back at number – I think it only took one survey to get back to number one. It was immediate, nine. yep. And then for you to be part of that, I think you – switched with your cousin on roles? Because Gemma Sapwell was on the Jones program as a researcher or something of that equivalent, yep. and then she went to Two Murrays and then you went into to breakfast. What was that like, to go on that program, which was such a, and still remains to this
1: day, a, a Sydney radio institution? It was utterly terrifying, <laughs> utterly terrifying. I'd never been more frightened in my life than the first day, at half past three, walked into the office, and it was completely different to what I'd experienced both with Prue and with the, the two Murrays this was this was the the greatest broadcaster of all time and somehow you've managed to get a gig so your first thing was hey you're terrified the second thing is don't stuff it up because well it would like it with a lot of these guys but, but Jones particularly there's just no room for error so you do learn very very quickly and you learn to become a perfectionist much like he is obviously not his caliber in his caliber or in his league but you, you got absolutely dirty on yourself if you made a mistake if there was a slight thing like a comma in the wrong place or an oblique in the wrong place or any sort of punctuation error you were absolutely so hard on yourself because you wanted to get it absolutely right so that whatever you might have written that went to where was was perfect in everything that we did. That's
0: Group 1 territory right there, isn't right
1: it? Right there. Well, I went from a, a Class B at Gerildery at a picnic meeting to a Group 1 at Flemington. That was probably the, 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 uh, the translation. And Jones, obviously, and still does, just has this great team
0: around him. Many of and the, very loyal. Many of the staff that, are, like you say, have been with him for 25 years, yep. which it's a long time in any job, and more particularly
1: in media. And doing those hours as well, like you're getting up in the middle of the night, and you're on. You have to be on your game from the minute that you walk in the door. And Jones' staff, Allen's staff, are fiercely loyal. And I, I was there 10 years. First week I was there, I thought, I'm not going to last six months here. I'll get turfed out the door. But I had no intention of leaving in the 10 years that I was there because I loved it. You thrive under that pressure and in that atmosphere and surrounded by people uh, that have been in the game for so long. Paul Christensen, of course, legendary for being with Alan almost from the get-go, minus only a couple of years. He's been there nearly all of the 30 years, which is incredible. People like Briny. Bowman, who's been with Alan for years. Lyndall Sutton was with Alan for years. Oh, Tonia Taylor was there for years. They all stick around. Neve Kenny came and went, but for a lot of years. They're fiercely loyal. As the 1232 Qantas jet goes above here. At the I North thought I'd be Bernadette. on it a week <laughs> after starting with Jones. I thought I'd be on a plane somewhere <laughs> a long way away. Somehow we managed, Ralph, to stick it out.
0: So how did you cope with those hours? A lot of people struggle with it because, as you said, it's not an early start. It's the middle of the night. There's the expectation that goes along with working with somebody like Alan, like you said, is a complete and utter perfectionist. So how did you deal with, with that situation,
1: having to get up so early for work? Because it does burn a lot of people out. It certainly does. And yeah, it's, it's very different. It's, uh, one thing about it is that you never get used to it. You never get used to it, and that constant feeling of fatigue, even on weekends when you weren't working, was always there, and it's very difficult to go to bed early knowing you've got to get up early. because quite often it's Sunday, everyone. the Sunday night? The uh, Sunday or? night was horrendous, and you'd go to bed, and you think, oh, six hours to go, and then you'd find you'd sit there looking at the clock, and you're like, no, I've got to get to sleep now because I've only got five and a half hours, Then I've got to be up, and who have we got on the program today, and what have I got to write, and... God, I'm not going to be off my game and this sort of stuff. So your mind was constantly revolving and thoughts were going around your mind, particularly Sunday nights were the worst. But I guess in answer to your question, your body never gets used to it, but you just learn to deal with it. And afternoon naps became a necessity and, and all that sort of stuff. So
0: you were a napper because
1: there's, there's two schools
0: of thought. There's like push through, do the whole day, go to bed early, or there's the nap
1: and then go to bed a little bit later and then, you know. It's kind um, of a, lo- a lot of like a lot of life. You take what you can get when you can get it. So if there were the opportunity to grab it an hour or so in the afternoon was there, you'd grab it, you know, you'd grab that opportunity because uh, there was never any such thing as a good constant night's sleep knowing that at 10 past three, there was going to be alarm, an alarm half a foot away from your head going off its dial. Your role within the show when the show was actually on was to be the call screener
0: or basically answering the, the phones, Alan having the, the loyal listenership that he has, you would have had to have been able to be very capable in that position because not only are you, you looking to get people to air quickly, but you also don't want to be rude at the same time. So how did you find that balance to be
1: like a receptionist for the program, yeah. one of a better term? Yeah, it um, again, like with most things, you, you had to very quickly – Get to know your listenership or Alan's listenership and you obviously had your regular callers and whatnot and one thing that I did become very good at very quickly was typing. The information had to get on the screen immediately so there was no time for mucking around. It was like, it was the best typing course I ever did. Not that I had to do a course because it had to be up on screen then and there and It was all about judgment. You got to know the type of calls that that were appropriate for whatever segment was needed. And it it was pretty rare that that Alan was unhappy with any caller that went to air. I mean, he can handle himself. And there was never an issue if somebody wanted to have a go at him. His idea was bring it on. You know, it opens up the debate, and and that's what TalkBack was all about. So from my perspective... It was it wasn't a difficult job because Alan's listeners are very intelligent and are very aware, socially aware and politically aware, and more often than not, were very intelligent in terms of the comments that they'd like to ring up and make. So in that respect it made it very, very easy. Tell me about working alongside somebody like Paul
0: Christensen who perhaps many people wouldn't know, but is pretty much the force behind the Alan Jones programme meticulous in his approach to everything that he does. What was it like working with somebody like that? I mean, the jokes were going around that he would arrive at the exact second every single uh,
1: day. Oh, they weren't jokes. It it, was routined and regimented with military precision. Military precision. The wardrobe was set to go. It was all everything. Paul's amazing, amazing, very stoic, very loyal. He would always back the people he was working with, and as Alan's chief of staff, he was the go-to man. Uh, he was very loyal. A great, um, great command of the language. His ability to write uh, editorials and interviews, and in a style in Alan's style. I mean, you, you're talking about somebody who was writing the way Alan would speak, and that that is amazing. Given getting inside Alan's head, well, which that, that's not exactly, exactly well. Easy I mean, easy to do. This is the thing when you've got someone who you're dealing with that as an intellect out of this world to try and tap into that and then put that down on paper to to make it sound like him is a phenomenal skill that that Paul has got and he's one of the most intelligent people that I've ever met. And as I say, very loyal and a very decent guy, a family man and his lovely wife and, and his 8,000 kids and, and everyone in the industry adore him. He would never do a wrong thing or a wrong turn by anyone. He's just a genuinely, a, a fundamentally very decent guy.
0: May be the most patient Without unfla- doubt. unflappable person that you've ever met in your life. Without any shadow of a doubt
1: without any shadow of a doubt and when the proverbial would hit the fan and occasionally it did Paul was there as a great mediator and would always get everyone to see a little bit of reason even when tempers sometimes occasionally I know you might find this shocking when tempers might actually flare every now and again sometimes
0: you're working in radio when things are in a high pressure environment there's breaking news and all that kind of thing so how important is it to have somebody there that's pretty much like the the traffic cop, if you like, to
1: the calming of, influence? Yeah. Absolutely, it's so important because all of a sudden you have a, a, a staff. If you had a staff full of people that would go off their head and whatnot, it would be anarchy. It would be out and out war. You definitely need that person that mediator type role who could see sense and reason. And when the proverbial did hit the fan, he was there to get everyone back on track. And And in that respect and so many others, he just does it better than anyone.
0: Let's talk about Alan and what he does outside radio. You probably know him better than most, that inner circle that worked on that program for so many years
1: there's a lot of stuff that gets unseen isn't it more than more than you could comprehend more than you could comprehend and the the stories and he is legendary in terms of particularly his correspondence which is so important to him and people find that and you know a little bit different but for him it was very much an old school way of dealing with his listeners and the number of letters that that he would often get people that were in desperate trouble that had absolutely nowhere to go and governments were useless and local members and politicians were useless and a charitable organisations sometimes turned their back on them. It would be him and quite often money would be coming out of his own pocket. He was seeking, would often seek or never seek any kudos whatsoever, just a simple word of thanks is, uh, is all he did and a lot of the stuff and many millions of dollars, I can tell you, that he, he gave in terms of the actual currency and in terms of his time in fundraising and whatnot that would go often largely unspoken about or unsaid, and that's the way he wanted it, which was testament to the generosity and the, the charitable nature of the man.
0: What makes the program so good that he does every morning and has done for close to 30 years? I mean, if you, you, you look at it, I don't think there's been a, a broadcaster, and I spoke to Andrew Moore about this, that... Has got an interest or just an approach to so many different areas of life. So he's heavily into, like, the arts, he's heavily into sport, he's politics, he's there's just that vast array of of subjects that he can broach and will be able to hit a subject with a whole lot of research behind him, mind you, but there is nobody that's invested the way that he's invested.
1: The one thing about him that sets him aside, with them one of the many things, is his ability to simplify a very complicated issue and translate that to his listeners. Now, the most complex of political, economic, or whatever it might be, scenarios, and his ability to break it down and put it in layman's language that his listenership could understand, and then comes the opinion on top of that, is so unique. The mind of the man when you, and you talk about, you, you could tell you every Melbourne Cup winner and place getter and what weight they carried for the last fifty-seven or fifty-eight years without fail, and we'd often, I'd say eighty-seven. He'd say Kenji, Lesbridge, Larry Olsen, Rails Run took the Rails Run, you know things like that <laughs> to the to the art to politics. Yep. Uh, to to social issues, to economic issues, to world politics. It doesn't end just in Australia. He's got such a unique insight into British politics, American politics and African politics as well, and and, he, and many crusades that he's gone on against world leaders. You know his ability to break down complicated issues and make it simple and put them in layman's language for his listeners is one of the great many strengths that he possesses. How long do you think he can keep going for? Oh, there'll be no stopping him. There'll be no stopping him. And for the last a good ten years, every time contract time is up, out they come. Oh well, this will be this will be Jones's last. He won't sign again and he just keeps on signing. Because why why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he? He's got such a pivotal role to play in in society and his listeners would be devastated. He's his mind is as sharp as it was 25 years or 30 years ago and he still enjoys it and he still thrives on it and he loves it. He'd miss his listeners. They're very important to him. The
0: health issues have obviously been a, a problem over the last few years for him where he's sort of had numerous things that have sort of gone on that have sort of slowed him down a little bit and he's had to slow himself down a little bit in terms of all of the extra curricular activities that he was doing in terms of charity stuff and also to combine that with the, the radio program. Just to watch and just have a look at his diary probably 15 years ago would have just been ridiculous surviving on like you know three hours sleep a night
1: and, and then... people think that that's rubbish Ralph that that didn't happen <laughs> oh, <I don't> <laughs> it did happen it did happen and quite often he would leave a fundraiser at midnight and get an hour's sleep and then come into work and prepare for the program and that wouldn't just happen once a month that'd be four nights a week that'd be four nights a week on top of weekends flying into state and overseas to do much of the same thing he would been a lot of time in airports and on aeroplanes going to and from fundraiser. The, the the point about Alan is nothing ever ended when the microphone it was turned, turned off. Yeah. In fact, that when the microphone was on was probably the easiest part of his day, given what he had to do then for the next 15 hours or 16 hours after he came off air. We spoke
0: about Paul Christensen there. There are a number of other people behind the scenes that, that make that show work because... Anyone that's sort of been around radio or been around 2GB in particular over the last sort of 15 years or 2G, 2UE before that, the amount, as you said before, the correspondence, it's unexplainable. Like,
1: it, it, it would be literally two of those great big Australia Post buckets every morning filled with letters, hundreds and hundreds. And that was before email came in. And when email came in, it was just sent into a different stratosphere. And uh, when I mentioned some of the, the long-term, just getting back to that and loyal staff, like Ross Geddes has been with, with Alan for well over 20 years. Well over 20 years. He's the studio producer or panel operator, as they used to call him. As them they back used in to the call day. him. And that's right. He was the one that was, was sitting there three feet from Alan every morning. So if you talk about that program being sometimes a pressure cooker type situation, he was right there at, at the front of it. You know, and and the late Lyndall Sutton was had was well renowned for having the greatest book of contacts on the planet, on the planet, and it was incredible. Had everybody's phone number, everybody, you name it, Lyndall had it. Lyndall had it. It was was, actually quite
0: a compliment, I must say. It's just like Lyndall must have exhausted all of her chase to to find. I can't even remember, but. I remember getting a call on a, a Sunday night when I was producing a sports show and Lyndall rang up, asking me for the contact of somebody. So I took that as a
1: compliment that I could find somebody that she didn't. Oh. That would have been very rare. That is a feather in your cap because if Lind- Lyndall didn't have the number, there were very few others that would have had it. So oh, give dear. yourself a rap because take about not too many numbers you didn't have in a contact. Um,
0: oh, And, you know, uh, uh, the fact that these people stay with Alan as well is also a testament they love to... Yep the program and also what he does for them
1: behind the scenes. Absolutely right. He's very generous with both his time and, and everything else. And the, the one thing you knew about Alan, and I still do, if I was in trouble and I picked up the phone and rang him, not only would he answer, and I have done over the years when situations arise where you, you find yourself needing either some advice or whatnot, he's the first one there, fiercely loyal, Fiercely loyal, and he never loses. You never lose that with Alan, that, that friendship and that mentorship. And it's a testament to, to the man and the generosity of the man that he was as grateful to us as we were to him. What do you say to the knockers? Because there's plenty of them out there. They've been around for years, haven't they? Been, he just keeps defying them, doesn't he? The one thing I will say quite often is that of those people that are often. Very unfairly, scarifying about Alan is they don't know him, and quite often, more often than not, those people who try to to tear him down don't know the man. Don't know the man. In answer to your question, they keep coming, the knockers, but he just keeps defying them.
0: Now, a lot of people internally would know you as one of the great Alan Jones impersonators.
1: I thought this had come up. In fact, in fact. Alan is quite aware of it too. I, I once remember him saying, and of course, every you know, when you when you, it's a form of flattery, isn't it? When you idolise someone, you want to be like them. Yes. And so, one of the best forms of flattery is, you know, impersonation or imitation of them. Yes. Anyway, Paul Murray thinks he does a good job of oh, Alan he's Jones. Fans.
0: Murray's fair. Yeah. Billy Murray's Birmingham fair. thinks he's a good job. I fair. like to. I, I've to, on occasion delved into the odd Alan, but. You are, without doubt, the gold
1: medalist. There's, there's no betting. The markets had already shut even before they'd open. Yeah, Munsey's not having a bar of it. <laughs> Munsey's not having a bar of it, and he was quite aware of it. I, I once remember him saying, "I know that you go down to the," and I'm not putting on his voice. I know that you go down to the Petersham Pub most nights, and and there you are getting a laugh out of and getting a rise out of me. I thought, jeez, he's onto me. There's not a thing he doesn't know. There's not a thing he doesn't know. It's. A lot of fun, and, and he knows that as well, that it's, a, that it's all in jest. As I say, it's a form of flattery. The more, Give us a bit of banjo, Patterson. I knew you'd put me on the spot like this. <laughs> the great Sir James Killen once said, two musical notes should guide us in all we do, be natural and C-sharp. How's that? That's gonna land me into trouble, I suppose. Your <laughs> lawsuit? Alan? Oh. Alan, keep the lawyers at bay. If Alan Jones is listening to the Media
0: Mates podcast, I'll completely give life away. <laughs> I think your secret's safe here. As you said earlier, um, you come from a racing family, so racing is very much in your blood. You got a taste of TV doing some segments for Sky News early on when yep. you were still working for Alan. Was that something that you saw as a, a little entree to getting your way to eventually sky racing?
1: How did that all sort of come about? It was quite amazing, and I haven't really told too many people this, and I don't think that Ian Ferguson will mind that I am sharing this story, but we were at a party one night, a Friday night, leading into a spring carnival. It would be eight or nine years ago, I guess. And anyway, as you do it at, at social gatherings, a couple of brewskis sort of kicked in. and Talking I just, yourself up. Yeah, a couple of brewskis kicked in, and I thought, right, so over I went to Ferg, who, of course, runs Sky News and the news part of, of Sky News, and I remember saying to him, "You know, 28 schooners under the belt, saying, oh, come on, Ferg, what's going on? You've got football people on Sky News talking about the spring carnival. It's ridiculous. I said, why don't you get someone on there that actually knows? A bit, I said, you wouldn't have a racing person talking about football, so why have you got a football person talking about racing? To which Ferg, after a few beers later and probably quite taken aback at the front of this, this kid, said to me, right, well, you reckon you can do it? We'll get in there Friday. We'll, we'll put you on. We'll see how you go, sink or swim. And I thought, oh I thought nothing of it until the Thursday came around. He said, right, you'll be here tomorrow at four o'clock and you'll be on at six o'clock with Craig Norenbergs and we'll see how you go. So in we went, terrified. And I thought Ferg had this look that he wanted me, I think, to fail. Ferg, Ferg wanted me to fail. I think not wanted me to fail, but thought, right, you upstart, we'll see what you've got. We'll see what you're made of. Anyway, as soon as the first question was asked, and obviously a racing question, well, it was, it was like an all-night chemist. They couldn't shut me up. So the rest of what say is history. I don't know whether any of it made sense, but to the, to the, the average punter, I suppose it did, because well, they, yeah, they gave g- me a gig after that.
0: Oh, you were giving racing tips on the, on the two Murrays, which were terrible. Um, and they still were, are. They haven't improved <laughs> on, all these on the years Jones later. program giving racing tips. Terrible. Terrible. Wifeful. I, I think you may have, in that first... Sky News, but you may have tipped a decent winner. I think because you rang me, you said, I'm on Sky News this week, give it a look, see what's going on. Um, so I watched it and then I think you may have tipped a double figure odds winner on debut. I'm not.
1: I'm not I don't hold me to that. You're but- absolutely right. It was the only clown, <laughs> crowning moment in tipping uh, and, it, and just somehow managed to jag. I think I tipped two the other day, but... You wouldn't have had to have been very smart to tip a patchy cat at sort of 10s yeah. on. Anyway, yeah, we got yeah. that one as well. But uh, yeah, had a bit of luck and, and uh, apparently the feedback that they'd got were quite good and management at Sky News were happy with it and that segment continued, I think, once or twice a week for and during the carnival, the spring and autumn carnivals, for good three or four years, thanks largely to Ian Ferguson and Craig Norenberg, Paul Gregg, a terrific fella, and James Bracey was there at the time and, and all of those guys who were, who were terrific and who I idolised in my own right as well. So what was that like, actually, getting on TV to talk about
0: something that you were so passionate about while still
1: working with Alan at at GB? It was very easy because of the subject matter. Because I knew all, all I'd done, you know, since a kid was either been around racing or... Well, most kids were out playing cricket or whatever on a Saturday afternoon. I was sitting in the tab watching firstly races from Pukekohe in New Zealand. And then, you know, races, all that was, it was racing was, was everything to me and, and still is. And in that respect, it was very, very easy because I knew the subject matter. Had I had been put on to speak about anything else, I'd have been a complete and utter disaster at it. But because I knew racing and it was one of the biggest things in my life and still is, it, it was very, very easy in that respect.
0: Talk to me about that. Where, so, oh, you mentioned there that the, the family, so being involved in in that kind of field. Does that mean going to the track, going to the
1: tab? Or like, where did that first bit of interest land for you? Well, Craig got us all in. My brother, he was uh, a very successful jockey in his own right, both here and for four or five years in in Singapore. So Saturdays, and quite often. Ditching school on a Wednesday to go down to Canterbury Park and watch Craig ride. But he he was the one that instilled the, the racing bug, I think, in just about all of us, in my brothers and sister, and uh, was very much a catalyst for us getting involved in the industry because So your parents were weren't racing, people, racing people, no. Not not the old man didn't mind a bet. Mum wasn't into racing at all. But Craig got us in. There's no doubt about it. And from that uh, my brother, Greg, is the race course manager at Canterbury and has been for, for many years, got in the same way. It was that interest that, that Craig instilled in all of us and, and the media as well. Um, my brother, Robert, who loves a punt, he's the chief of staff at A Current Affair and has been for has been at, at, uh, at ACCA for 20 years or something like that, but always with that very strong racing presence around all of us. Keeping that in mind and watching what your brother had to go through as
0: a jockey, it's not necessarily an easy profession. People think that they look at the the guys that are at the upper echelon and, and see them and they make millions of dollars each year because they're riding all of these winners around carnival time. But that's not necessarily the case, is it? Because there's hundreds of other jockeys around the country that really do it tough. So what was it like watching someone firsthand that had to go through the process of having to waste to to make rides and and do all of those things.
1: Yeah, it was was incredibly difficult. And there would only be, Ralph, a very, very small percentage of jockeys who become very, very wealthy out of riding. Uh, The vast majority of them still make a good living, but it's very, very tough. Not unlike Breakfast Radio, except we didn't have to waste on Breakfast Radio, but they're getting up and doing similar hours and they're going to the track at sort of 4 o'clock in the morning and working till 10. Sometimes they'll do barrier trials, go home, maybe get a quick hour's sleep, then go to the races and ride all day. Uh, The wasting and the dietary restrictions are out of this world. It would be on a Friday night when Craig was riding on Saturday, forget it, dinner for him would be a bowl of lettuce and a carrot or something like that, coffee. A black coffee in the morning would be breakfast and that was it, in between sitting in saunas and spas and quite often would run around the block when he was training with Costa Zoo, who was a neighbour of his. Craig would strap, would wear four or five tracksuits and strap bricks to his hand to run uphill in order to sweat. He'd quite often go to the races wearing parka jackets and like look like ski gear with the air conditioning on 38 degrees to try and get a last-minute sweat out before you went out on the back of these half a ton animals so and then try and make a quid and hopefully ride a winner. So for, for anyone that thinks that it's an easy, lavish game and it's a matter of turning up, you've got it completely wrong because only a very small percentage are in that bracket whereby they make a lot of money and such is their skill. They don't have to, to work as hard and, and waste as hard as people that aren't quiet. Haven't, haven't crossed that bridge into the elite sort of category.
0: I'd imagine you'd have a different perspective on the work that you do right now, but even before that, uh, jockeys that get crucified for not riding as perhaps the punter who's got his hard-earned on it, he might have wasted his rent money for the week on a, on a certain horse because the jockey didn't take the, the right option in a particular race. I mean, you're talking about beasts of over half a ton they're
1: they're they're racing at 60 k's an hour they've got split second to make a decision and that's the key it's a split second in which to take the inside run persevere and wait to get to try and extricate into the clear on the outside and sometimes and we've all been guilty of it of bagging jockeys and and that's very easy to do when you're talking through your kick they're very easy to do they're heroes one minute when they when they get they pull the right rein, so to speak, and they're villains the next, when they perhaps get it a little bit sort of wrong. So but that's the nature of the industry and the nature of the punt, I suppose.
0: Let's talk about the transition
1: to television.
0: The opportunity came up for you to go to sky racing. You were there as a on a casual basis for a little while before you took on the, the role full time. Was that a difficult decision for you to make or was it something that once you had the taste of it you felt comfortable in it, and then you could pursue
1: it as a, a full time option for yourself. Yeah, definitely, and and it was and one one thing I will say about that is that when the opportunity came up, and Alan was absolutely terrific in that that twelve or eighteen months when I was doing sometimes working till midnight at Sky, and then back in at three thirty in the morning or four o'clock in the morning to start work with him, he would quite often sit at home and make notes for me on my presentation and on my performance and critique it. And whilst uh, the guys at Sky and management there did a similar thing, it was it was certainly Alan's advice in particularly presentation and your ability to communicate that was, was just so crucial and essential. And I'm very, very grateful that he did that because it's – something that not too many people starting out in TV get the opportunity to go to somebody like him to sound out advice and not only go to him, him being more than obliging in, in giving his time to, to helping you progress and to helping you to help you become better at what you do. So for that, I'm very grateful.
0: So talk to me about that, being behind the scenes guy with Alan to being front and centre on a, um, a coverage like, Sky Racing, where you've got to know your stuff and you've got to be able to communicate and you've got to be able to do it in a really succinct manner because the next race is
1: only 20 or 30 seconds away. How do you do that? It's, it's quite amazing and it's a skill that, that you pick up as you go along. It, it pays a very clear mind when you go to work so that you, you're sharp and you're spot on and you don't give misinformation or inaccurate information because you very quickly found out. It's not as though... You're sitting there talking uh, to a couple of mates in a pub. You're talking to uh, 5,000 venues and how many viewers at home and sometimes up to 36 countries overseas. So if you don't know your stuff, you very quickly get found out. So and you're very conscious and mindful of that and you, you want to do a good job and you want to uh, get the right information across and you want to be accurate. So it's a skill that I think you pick up along the way but as I say, just in repeating myself, if, if you don't know, you'll get viewers offside very quickly and they won't have a bar of you. So you always try and, and be honest and forthright and be accurate above all. In terms of television, the one thing I noticed the difference was, having done it a little bit, was
0: that the team is so much bigger than in radio. Sometimes you're pretty much a one-man band in what you have to do, but whereas in television you've got like a whole lot of other people in the room, you're the presenter and you've got to take advice or you've got to take information from these different people that are scattered all around in a in a control room situation. What's that like to sort of get used to and then keep in mind that you're the front guy that's pretty much driving the
1: bus? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question. And one thing that, that you do learn very quickly is because we have an, an open mic system whereby you do hear quite often six or seven people at a time talking, and that is going straight into your ear and sometimes it it can become very difficult when quite often you want to hear about what the guys and girls have done over the weekend in the meantime you're trying to articulate information in terms of betting to your viewership about an upcoming race so it's you quickly learn to sort of block out what you don't need and take in what you do and that becomes easier with time at first it was it was very difficult having never been in a situation like that where You have to hear six or seven people and then you filter in and filter out what you do need and process what you don't and and all of that sort of stuff and then still try and maintain some sort of fluency on air is difficult. But it does get it does get easier and it becomes second nature. Having
0: that knowledge behind you and that preparation obviously is really important because in any one day you could be talking about races that are in Mornington and then there's ones at, at Wyong and then there's other horses that are on the, the Sunshine Coast and then in New Zealand and all all the rest of it. How much time would you put into actually doing I guess, the form for all of those races so that at least you give some credibility and it's not horse number four, you know, Billy Bloggs racing at whatever because that, to me, you don't
1: give any insight or you're just giving price fluctuations. Yeah, know? that's right. And I guess the, the thing about that is when you love the game, you're always watching it. You're always, and if you're not watching it, you're looking at results and you're looking at nominations and then the weights come out and then the acceptances come out and you think, hang on, well, Daniel Nordy's riding at, at Tamworth today and then he's at, at Maruya the next day and... And then you think, well, and then he rode a winner at Scone three days before that. You, you just you keep on top of it by watching it all, watching it constantly, watching barrier trails. And I host a lot of the barrier trail show, which is great, particularly sometimes from a punting perspective to spot a little sneaky there. And then they go to the races and you might jag a price first up from a spell or whatnot. But I think that the key is in terms of preparation for what I do is to be constantly watching it. And so I watched all of the races yesterday and I watched them all this afternoon at, at Hawkesbury and keep an eye on Rockhampton and, and know what's going on down there at Wagga tomorrow and what John Scors is tipping down there and what Gary Harley's tipping on Friday at Tamworth and then on Sunday at Cessnock and whatnot. So you're always watching it and you're always not necessarily having a punt on it, but just being aware of what's going on at all of the tracks, not just New South Wales wide, but Australia wide and worldwide. Has it improved your punting? Anymore? Not at all. It's terrible. Terrible, and and the thing about one thing I will say, Ralph about working
0: at one thing about
1: working at SkyRight is <laughs> that I don't really punt all that much now, because you get to the point where you're watching it so much. I guess you'd liken it to working at McDonald's. You might love a quarter pounder, but do five shifts a week though, and the last thing you want to do is eat a quarter pounder type thing. So yeah. it it does get to that point. But in terms of the punt, I do love to go when I'm at the races. I typically don't have a bet. Of course, we're allowed to, but I typically don't. Some of the boys do, some don't. It's sort of each their own. But uh, on a day off, sitting around the pub with a couple of mates, you're always the one that they go to and say, come on, Gav, you know, what have oh. we got here? You know it, and then of course <laughs> you'll throw up something and, and it gets beat a hundred yards, and then uh. you've got no idea, and you're the worst in the world, and all of that. What
0: about it, Melbourne you, well, Cup Day? How many text messages you goes, get on it Melbourne Cup ballistic?
1: Day? Goes <laughs> ballistic. geez you're the most popular kid in school on Melbourne Cup Day. Uh. Every Tom, Dick, and Harry you haven't spoken to from the twelve months prior, and you won't speak to the, the twelve months later. They want to know what's going to win. And, I might just say for the record on the Melbourne Cup, for any of my mates who are listening, the last winner I backed of the Cup was Let's Alope in 91. So the track record is terrible. So if you like something next year, figure it out yourself. I'm not the go to man for that. 91. I'm not lying. Let's Alope. Stephen King. Who were the people that helped
0: you along at Sky? Because obviously, as we said, there was a bit of a, an adjustment there for you to get used to the presentation thing and also the, the multiple voices that you talked about. Was there anyone that sort of gave you advice on the best way to,
1: to deal with well, what you were doing? It was quite a funny story the day that I went for the interview, the official interview at, uh, at Sky, And I'd been doing a lot of freelance work there for 18 months or so, and then the opportunity came up for a full-time role as a presenter. And I'd never been to French's Forest. I'd never heard of it. Didn't know where it was.
0: I wouldn't go that far on my uh, holidays. Correct.
1: So a good mate of mine, Mark Levy, whom I know that you know very well, also took me over for my interview. Took me into Sky, and Levy being Levy, virtually walked straight in and said to Mark Duclos who was the executive producer at the time now listen you're getting you're giving him this job and that's the end of it and uh I don't know whether Duke was dumbfounded or wanted to hit him in the face or something anyway he buckled and thankfully it it worked out so in terms of getting a foot in the door I had a foot in the door but to to, to actually get there under an interview type situation it was great to have Levy there to to be an icebreaker for want of a better term. Yeah, and, well, for those listening, he'll be the next guest on the Media Mates podcast who's just sitting to the side. And it'll be 30 minutes, I can tell you, where you'll have story after story. Nobody is better at talking about themselves than Mark Levy. I can't <laughs> wait to hear that podcast. it will be outstanding. We'll it makes this. me look like a Maury maiden. out <laughs> He's currently
0: acting as the barmaid at the North Annandale Hotel. It doesn't look real good we're, in an apron either, yeah. I have to tell you. <laughs> uh, in any case, so what's it like now? You know, you had that presence in the studio for, for quite some time and your role these days is more about getting out to the, the various tracks around New South Wales and Sitting alongside the experts and and getting the, their tips and anchoring the
1: coverage from the track. How do you find that so, as opposed to the the studio, the studio stuff so, that you've done before? It's absolutely, Ralph. It's fantastic. It's the best job I think that I'll ever have. the The travel is fantastic, particularly to the bush. You get to meet and all of these fantastic people, and quite often, well, in fact. 99.9% of the time. So you're dealing with people who are going around, thankfully, with a prize money increase in New South Wales for very good money, but these are battlers who are struggling, a lot of them, with eight or ten horses in work, and they're doing their best with staff and with horses, and you get to know them, the more time you spend at tracks like Dubbo and Wellington and Bathurst and Tamworth and, and all of places. I'm surprised the amount of, the of time is, that you spend around all these racing on the people, road. but you're still terrible on the punt. Oh, yeah, terrible. Terrible. And, and to meet some of these people, you know, you go to Scone and, and Greg Bennett, you know, affectionately known as the mayor of Scone, a terrific fellow, Greg, who, the man that broke in long run Mackaybee Diva. You find these incredible horsemen and women, horsemen and women, and they've all got a story to tell. And quite often it's only in a post race interview that you'll find out that Gaynor Williams has got a horse going to the, being set for the country championships. Her owners bought the horse on Gumtree. They've gone to buy a desk, a school desk, and two mates after a couple of beers thought, no, we'll buy a horse. It's now 150,000, and he's a live chance of winning a $400,000 race. Should it qualify for a trainer at Mudgy who's got 10 in work? These are the sorts of stories you can only find on the road. And, and when you're traveling a lot, and I work very closely with people like Gary Harley, who's one of the great legends of not only football and racing and journalism, but has got so many great stories to tell. And I, it, it's, it's phenomenal to be able to surround yourself with people that have lived these extraordinary lives and have these great stories to tell and you never, ever stop learning, particularly, as I say, when you go to these bush tracks and, and meet some of the folks who are just so down to earth. It's it's terrific. We sort of spoke about
0: it before where we're talking about millions of dollars for people that, that win and it's referred to as the, the sport of kings, but it's also very appealing to the battler because... look at the takeover target story for for example it's just one of many many ones that you would have seen over the years that racing just has this all-around appeal you know and so many great stories get thrown up from it and we look at Michelle Payne winning the the Melbourne Cup in 2015 and, and what kind of thing that that did for for women's sport and how she expressed herself after the race and everything that goes along with that I mean I think people can identify with you know, the stories of the, the far laps and all of these, these rags to riches stories.
1: And that's make, what makes it. That makes racing great. It I does. Know? It does. And and you need you need your big hitters. You need your big influential breeders. And you need uh, people that are quite, uh, well, they've afforded the success that they deserve because they've pumped so much into the sport. But then every now and again, a story comes along, as you quite rightly said, with a takeover target or a story of that nature, which, which really... It gives a lot of hope to to people who are never going to be giants in the industry, but they love it no less than those who have got a lot more money than they do to invest in it. And Whether it's the bloke out at at Bathurst or Cowra or Leeton who, who gets an unfashionably bred horse that they've paid not a lot of money for, the idea of it for them is to hopefully win a race, but more so to get five or six mates together to put in very little amount of money and have a day out. And just as an aside, you've got a horse in the race and who knows, you might win a race and and pick up some decent prize money. But for a lot of people, it's it's not about making a lot of money. It's about giving back to an industry which they love so very dearly. Well, the thing about it is, it's like there's so many we've just sort of
0: seen what money has transpired at the Magic Millions and people could spend millions of dollars on a horse and it may not even make it to the track well, it Whereas, doesn't guarantee like, success you know you right. could spend 1500 on a horse and it could you know win a few group 1 races if you're lucky it's it's all about luck and opportunity and i guess that's the whole theme with gambling and everything that goes along with it it's it's got that
1: element of of risk and reward absolutely spot on and you know quite, quite often there's uh, the stories of legendary of horses that, that have been you know, gone under the hammer for well over a million dollars and, and wouldn't run out of sight on a dark night. And then you get a horse like Indigase, a seven- or eight-time group one winner who they paid 15000 for and won only $3.6 million. It Big bucks doesn't translate to success. A lot of the time it does when it comes to, to horses, but not always. And I think that uh, for a racing uh, enthusiast and someone who loves the game, those are the sorts of stories that that you do like to tell the most sure you like to see those with deep pockets do well because they keep the industry going with the money that they invest and you love to see them get a return obviously but it gives you just as much of a kick to see you know somebody you know that trains at baraba with one horse in work come to town and win a highway race and they go home with 22 or 23 thousand dollars in prize money they're the stories i think that that make the game so great who are
0: the people that you admire from a a broadcast point of view at Sky Racing that you think they're really at the the top of their game and if I can be
1: just a fraction of what they are, that's who I'd like to to, to be like. It's amazing, Ralph. I think everybody bases themselves or tries to be very much like their idols, people that they look up to and who are at the, you know, the top of their game. I don't think there has ever been a, a, a host, a, a studio host, or in fact a, a, an on-track host who is in the league of the calibre of Greg Radley. He's just head and shoulders above everybody else. And it's he had that background at, at 2KY for many, many years and uh, obviously print journalism and all of that. For mine, Radley is ten lengths clear of anybody else that I've worked with in racing his uh, ability again very much in the same ilk of Jones to to translate and and to pass on and communicate with his audience and keep it in a simple way and his style is very a very laid back and very effective style particularly in terms of when he's interviewing people pre and post race he makes people feel comfortable uh, Richard Friedman is a very interesting man, which, which everybody knows, and he's great fun. And a lot of people, uh, particularly that don't know Richard, would be inclined not to like him. If they get to know him, they would. He's a very, very, very talented broadcaster as well. Uh, you've got your form experts. You wouldn't meet a nicer person than Gary Cleesey. You wouldn't meet a hard work, more hard working person than Gary Cleese. He does all of those meetings on the mid and far north coast and into places inland like Armidale and whatnot and Coffs Harbour to Ballin at a casino and and all of that. John Scorse, who rode the great Placid Ark down in the Riverina. You've got Gary Harley, a legend, as I said, in football and, and in racing and in Greyhound, all forms of the code, trots, greys, and Gallops, who looks after the the Hunter Valley. These people are the best at what they do because they've got the experience and they've got the wealth of knowledge and a lifetime of knowledge behind them. And from a punting perspective, when somebody like Cleesey tells you that that a mare is looking infinitely better in the yard at Lismore today than she did at Ballina a fortnight ago at a previous start, you take note, more often than not, if you're having a punt, you'll be somewhere on the right track.
0: Now, as our barmaid... Mark
1: Levy comes back with the... I can't believe he's shouting. Another... This is amazing. Another I, I can't believe he's stayed this quiet for this long, and I can't believe that he's actually put his hand in his very deep pockets. Uh, I find that, you know, when you when you, you know Levy... Up, we're we're on, when you're on You know, 1.8, 1.9 million every six months like Levy is occasionally to, to get a beer out of him is, is rather uh, nice. We'll wrap it up in a sec, but before we go, I just want to get some advice from you,
0: having been in the, the media game for 16 or, or 17 years... What would you say to people that are looking to get into the industry, whether they are wanting to be in radio or head to, down the racing path in, uh, at Sky Racing? What would you say to somebody that's dead keen on a, on a career in, in, in media?
1: Well, you won't regret it. You'll love it. You get to experience a lot of things that, in fact, nearly everything that you wouldn't get working a nine-to-five office job. You get to work with characters, larrikins, egos, the whole lot. And it's, it's very fulfilling and very rewarding. And for anyone, anybody that would be looking to get into it, if you love your racing, and uh, somehow they've managed to put this out on television, so you don't necessarily need to be very good looking. So if, you, if that's the path that you want to, to go down,
0: I'll not right regret it.
1: Where does the nickname Sparkles come from?
0: I had a feeling before, this might before come up. We, Before we continue that great advice that you were giving, we'll get back to that in a second,
1: but I, it's actually written here in my notes. Where I've did the, the
0: nickname Sparkles
1: come from? That uh, that came about probably about five years ago, a Saturday morning. It might have been Victoria Derby Day. The makeup lady had called in sick, so it was a case of DIY makeup, and of course, I'd well, never done it, and with a head like this, sometimes you need a little bit more than others who having might be said a that, bit you better didn't looking bring along your own kit today. Because Just you thought it might have been on TV. Might have thought, yeah, <laughs> preparations everything. Anyway, so I've opened up Victoria Derby Day, having DIY put the put the face on and whatnot. So I've sat in the chair. I've rolled the opener. Welcome to Victoria Derby Day. I've come on camera and I've said hello and welcome to race day here on Sky Racing. This is Victoria Derby Day. With that, I hear this screech in my ear coming from the control room, from Brad Adam, who was the executive producer at the time, and Catherine Jones, who was uh, underneath. She was an, an executive there as well. And I'm thinking, what is going on? there? Like, get him off, get him off, get him off. I'm thinking, what is going on? What have I said? Have I sworn? Or, What's going on? Throw it on ad break. Brad's person in the studio. What are you doing? It was a little bit more colourful than that, I have to tell you. I said, I've got no idea what you mean. He said, who has done your makeup? And I said, well, I had to do it this morning. And he said, mate, what have you got on your lips? And I said, well, the stuff that they put on. Mate, how much have you got on? And I said, well, I don't know. I sort of watched the, the nice makeup lady do it. It's an inch thick and it's sparkling. For God's sake, get it off. Anyway, I never made that mistake again, but sparkles was born after that because, yeah, apparently it, a little bit over the top.
0: And here's me, I always thought that it was the sparkle in your eye that was the, the, the dead giveaway. Maybe I should have gone with that. <laughs> but
1: the, the, no, let you're... the truth be told, I will never, ever be a makeup artist, nor no. would I want All to right, be. All right, well,
0: getting back to the advice, so what should people actually do? If they're, they're keen, should they write letters? Should they ring up? Should they do work experience? Should they work
1: for free? What What's your advice when it comes to that kind of stuff? All of that, be persistent, don't give up, when you cop knockbacks, and everybody does, just keep going at it. Um, I found work experience is a great way of of not only getting a, a hands-on approach, but also getting your face known and getting people to associate a name with a face. And all of a sudden, Ralph Tucker's called in sick, they need someone. Oh, what about that kid that was in there the other day that seemed to know his stuff will give him a run? I reckon that's one of the better ways, particularly in this business, where It's not necessarily an academically-based industry at all, but it's about proving what you can do once you are given the opportunity and making the most of it. So in that respect, I think that uh, working students is a great way of of going in and doing it and being known and associating your face to a name and proving what you can do in a a hands-on capacity. Gavin Carmody, thanks very much for your time. Ralph, thank you for having me on your podcast.
0: There he is, Gavin Carmody from Sky Racing. If you really enjoyed my chat today with Gavin, please let him know by sending him a tweet. He's at Gav Carmody. Although that Twitter account doesn't look like it's been touched for three and a half years, so good luck getting a reply. You can also follow us on Twitter, which is at MediaMatesAU. Check out the Facebook page. Most importantly, if you could subscribe in iTunes, that'd be great. It means you won't miss an episode. While you're there, leave a rating or review. That way more people will learn about the show. Until next time, I'm Ralph Tucker and this has been the Media Mates Podcast.